Good morning. I am so happy to be back here with you all. Um, big thank you to Cindy who jumped in and preached for me last week. Um, I, I just I had a fever that night and decided, especially in the current climate, it would not be a good idea for me all for me to come in and spend 20 minutes talking towards y'all. Um, she was very. I, I just let. Thank you so much, Cindy. <laughs> um, so welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is November the 15th. We are closing in on Advent quickly, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, if you want to check out the updates in your, in your bulletin, just a couple small uh, reminders that one, we, as I said, we're getting up to Advent. Uh, the if you are would like a poinsettia, uh, we aye, aye, aye. it uh, orders are due and, along with the payment by the 29th. Copies of the most recent Herald are on the back tables, which are gorgeous. If you haven't had a chance to stop and check out the new tables. Um, if you have some free time and feel like uh, splitting wood, uh, camp is looking for some help in splitting. Uh, just call Dale Allen, the number's in there, Monday through Saturday. Um, he would welcome someone, folks that come down, help split wood. You are free to take some home with you. Are there any other announcements? So if you are, if you sing in the choir or would like to sing with the choir, there is some discussion things going on. Stick around after church today if you're here uh, for a quick meeting. As we move into our prayer request, I've had a few come through to me. Uh, thank you uh, from Bruce for all the prayers and the cards and the calls. He is getting better and he thanks everyone for all of their, their support. Rick, the uh, son of our sister, um, thank you. Norma, yeah, sorry, thank you. I was just having a brain moment there. Um, the daughter, uh, the son of Norma, is continuing to heal from bladder surgery slowly but surely. Um, when I last talked to Norma, she was saying that he, he is calling people constantly and doing FaceTime. He really misses it being at home, being around the grandkids. He's ready to get out. Um, an update from uh, the Klein family, Alyssa, um, it hasn't been big news, but she's had two surgeries and some complications from such. Um, she is healing, but not as expected in dealing with some other issues. So please hold Alyssa up in your prayers. She's seeing some uh, doctors this week as they continue looking for solutions. 
Also hold Donna Klein, that's Chris and Doug's mother, in your prayers. She had emergency surgery on 6th. That was the day before um, the Russell and Katie's wedding, so they were unable to attend. She is recovering slowly, but is recovering. Are there any other prayers you would like to lift up today? I'm so sorry to hear. Um, Becky's brother-in-law, Deshaun, passed away this last Thursday, you said. Um, so prayers for him and, and the Maganovich family. Prayers for Michael, who's the grandson of Cecil. He is in Florida with the Coast Guard and tested positive for COVID-19. Um, and looks like he may not be able to come home for, for Thanksgiving as a result of this. I pray he, he stays well. Prayer for, for Dwayne Hawk's neighbor, Lloyd Weimer, um, who just tested for COVID and is 85. If you will join us as we prepare our hearts for worship.
you'll pray with me. Holy One, Holy Three, we pray for those dealing with this world right now, with these illnesses and sadness. We ask for healing for Alyssa and Donna, for Lloyd, for Bruce, for Rick, for Michael. We pray for surgeries that have gone well, ones that have not gone as well. For those fighting an illness, both young and old, that is so scary and unpredictable. We pray for comfort and presence. We lift up Deshaun and his family as they mourn the loss of one so loved. God, we know you are with us in these days. We pray that we feel you that we hear you, and that when others come to us, that we are able to be your servants to them. Fill us with your power as we come into this space to worship you. Fill our hearts with you. Give us the strength to go meet the problems that we will encounter in our world. To lift one another up. To continue to march to a brighter day. We lift all these things up to you, Lord. Amen. morning you'll have to deal with me acapella again I didn't have time to get with Bev to practice <clears throat> amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears. Really, 
precious dear that grace appeared the hour I first believed my chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace through many dangers toils and snares I have already His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease I shall possess within a veil a life of joy and peace my chains are gone I've been set free my God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there ten thousand years, Bright shining as the sun We've no less days To sing God's praise Than when we'd first begun My chains are gone I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Thank you, Mike.
Today's reading comes from the book of Numbers, 27, 1 through 11. And while I have practiced these names, I will probably mess them up again. The daughters of Zelophehad, see right there, the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, Tiraz. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who, branded, who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You certainly must give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. Before I jump into today's sermon, just to let you know, I'm going to be saying the law a lot. And when I'm saying the law, I'm referring to Moses' law, the Torah. Now, before last year, I had never really encountered this story before. I, it's possible I've read it or someone read it to me, but frankly, I'd never paid attention to it, really. There's a lot in the Bible, and sometimes that happens. Stories fall through the cracks with you. I, uh, it has a lot going against it. First off, it's in the book of Numbers. I don't know who their PR guy was, but when they renamed it the book of Numbers, they weren't going in any way to make it interesting sounding. I mean, the Hebrew name is the book of In the Wilderness. Why didn't they stick with that? Anyway... They called it numbers, because it has censuses in it. I don't know if it's censuses or sensi. Anyway, they have two censuses in it, one near the beginning and one right before this story, which is probably another reason it's not widely known, because it appears after a section which, let's face it, when you are reading the Old Testament and you get to these long lists of this person begot this person who begot this person, you start to kind of phase out for a bit. And Numbers has all the extra fun of saying this person who had 6,000 descendants, blah, 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 blah. And this story comes immediately before Joshua is raised up to be the next ruler, or not really ruler, leader of the Hebrew clan, the Hebrew tribes. 
So they're kind of stuck between one place and another. I mean, a major plot point in something that we generally all skip over. So it gets ignored. And this is actually kind of saying something, because Numbers is actually a really popular book when you read the Old Testament, even the New Testament. Like, they don't say it's in the book of Numbers, but they're often referencing stories that happen in the book. And this story appears here, and it's going to get a little bit of comeback later in the book, and even in the book of Joshua, they're going to talk about it just a little bit. But it never appears anywhere else. It just kind of disappears after this part of the story. Part of it is it's complex. You got to kind of read the whole book to get a good idea of well, why this story even is added, why it's important. It seems so minor, but it represents something profound, a change in how the people interact with the law, the documents that we use to govern our lives, whether it's, well, this law, the Torah, or the Bible, or even our congregational constitution, or even the Constitution of the United States of America. It changes how humans interact with written law. Okay, as I said, you got to kind of unpack numbers a little bit to just get to where we're at. Actually, you got to unpack the entire Torah, but I'm not going to make you sit here through all that. But we'll go back a little bit. So the book of Numbers takes place in a very specific space of time. So we have the Exodus happening, and then we have Leviticus, which is supposed to all kind of take place when they're at Mount Sinai. And then you have Numbers, and Numbers is the space where it goes from Mount Sinai to just outside the Promised Land. The next book's going to be Deuteronomy. That's where Moses gives his final speeches. And then Joshua, which is the conquering of the Holy Land. Now, this whole journey should have taken about two, three weeks, maybe four. I mean, they are moving a lot of people a long ways, but that's all it should have taken. But the first couple weeks of travel are angry, angsty, and anguishing. And Moses stops about halfway and goes, ah, that's it. I'm sending, I'm sending spies out on ahead. I'm tired of traveling, y'all. And so they go out, and Caleb and Joshua, two of them, come back and say, we have made it to the promised land, and it's beautiful. It's ready to, for us to go in there and start cultivating the land. We can't wait. Well, the other 10 spies come back and say, yeah, it is beautiful. It's also got a lot of big cities with tall walls and mean-looking people with pointy things. We shouldn't go. And they go and they rile up the people. And the people say, no, we don't want to go. It's too scary. And God goes, okay, you don't have to go to the promised land. But you, your children will. The rest of you, you get to wander around for 40 years until you all die except for Joshua and Caleb. And then you get to go into the promised land. And that's where the rest of the book goes. For 40 years wandering around in the desert. The book of Numbers is just after that. More complaining, some rebellions, some battles, and something else. 
the continuation of the giving of the law. Now this, again, started back in Exodus. It's most of all of Leviticus and through Numbers and Deuteronomy. It just continues. The law is given piece by piece by piece. Part of the law back in Leviticus concerns the, knee, the, the rights of inheritance and name. Now, Judaism and Christianity, I mean, Christianity comes out of Judaism. But Judaism has changed over the last 5,000 years. It doesn't look the same as it did back with Abraham, let alone what it looked like just back this far. It was still very different. There, there was a different concept of what life and death were, and they didn't necessarily believe in an afterlife. Not like we do. There wasn't like a heaven or a hell at this point. They didn't know that. They didn't believe in that yet. At this point, if there was an afterlife, they called it Sheol, which isn't a bad place to go. It's not a great place to go either. It's just everyone goes to Sheol. It's kind of like, I've heard it explained, like going to a big concert or a show. And you reach that point where the show's about to start and the lights go down and everyone gets really quiet. And then you get stuck right at that moment. The lights are down, everyone's quiet, and you're just waiting for all eternity. It's not bad, it's not good, it just is. That's kind of what they believe in at this point. They think that's what happens when you die. You're just stuck in this gray space. But they do actually have a positive form of afterlife, too. It's not a heaven. It's kind of like a continuation. It's an eternal life that's granted to you through your name. Specifically, well, male men's names being passed down through lines. You are remembered by your descendants. And by being remembered, you live on. So the law addresses this and says we got to make sure that names are remembered. So when you die, your sons inherit your land, and they carry on your name into the future. If you die and you don't have any sons, then your name will still live through the land, but it will also be carried on, that land will be protected by your brothers, and so on and so forth going outward. It's very male-centric, as I said. And, but what if, you're, what if your descendants fall on hard times? They get into debt. Maybe they're sold into slavery. That's what happens when you go into debt in this society. What if your land is sold off to others? What will happen then? You might be forgotten and you will live eternally. Okay, that's all right. We're going to make it jubilee. Every 50 years, everyone is freed, debts are erased, and your land is returned to your family. You will get to live on. Now, Zevilhad had died though, in the intermediary, in medium. The land had been promised to him already. Part of the land had already been set aside. This will be Zelophehad's land. His descendants will have this through all eternity. His name will live on. Except he had died and he didn't have any sons to actually go take the land. This causes a problem. As I said, one, his name won't live on. 
His brothers will inherit what should have been his land, but because it was never actually taken possession of, it really would never have been his in the first place. His name would simply be forgotten. The other issue is his daughters. They had nothing to their name. They had no father. They had no land. They probably had no dowry or anything. Chances of them getting married were now slim. Not a good option for them. So Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah approached Moses and the other leaders in front of the tabernacle and made their case. Moses took their case to God and God changed the law to make it more just. Okay, this kind of story always leads me to difficult theological questions, such as, how could God not know this was going to happen? Why did God have to go back and change the law that God wrote for something that obviously was going to happen? I mean, does God make mistakes? Does God not know what's going to happen next? I mean, this happens over and over again. God puts temptation next to people who are going to give in to temptation. God puts Saul in charge. He makes him the king. And then later says, I'm sad that I made Saul the king. And we just did Jonah a couple weeks ago. Who in their right mind would choose Jonah to be a prophet? He's a terrible prophet. This is... This is a center of a lot of arguments, a lot of theories, theologies are built out of this, huge ones. But there is one that seems to fit in what, how I read the Bible, what God's modus operandi is, what his MO is, especially the Hebrew scriptures. This is what I think God is doing. I think God makes mistakes on purpose to teach us lessons. God knows that humans will be tempted, but we need the lesson. God knows that leaders will come to believe in their own authority and ignore God's. But we need that lesson. Humans need to know that even cantankerous, disobedient prophets can have good outcomes and teach us good lessons. And in this case, I, God, I think God is reminding us that the purpose of the law is that it leads us towards justice rather than justice is achieved by following the law. We humans are really good at forgetting that, I think. I, mean, I was reminded that constantly when I was living in Lancaster because near where we lived was this park with the very catchy name of Northwest, Northwest Corridor Linear Park. We're all about good names today. It's a really long, thin park. I think at the widest, maybe 50 yards across, but it's 20 for most of it. And it's about a third of a mile long. It cuts under three blocks. And I say under because it's actually, it's an old railroad cut. That's why it's kind of hard to say how wide it is because it's got a really steep wall on one side and a really steep wall on the other side. And that's where the railroad once cut through the city so that it was one, 
kind of out of sight, down a little bit lower, and also didn't have to climb up the steep incline. I was always reminded, because as you walk through there, there's signs that tell you that this line was once used to smuggle freed slaves out of the South, or not freed technically, slaves escaping slavery out of the South, that they used... Uh, train cars with false walls and false ceilings and floors in them, and that they used these cuts so that they could easily get people in and out of the cars without being noticed by neighbors. It was legal to do that. If you were caught for every slave you were helping get to freedom, you could be, in modern money, fined $33,000. That was basically my entire income at one point. Of course, this is rather tame compared to other things in history we can easily point out. I mean, in Nazi Europe, if you were caught helping uh, Jews, you could end up in the death camps next to them. Sometimes following the law, though, is less important than following justice. But honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm pulling out the easy, the easy stories. Of course it makes sense to help free, help free slaves or to protect Jews from Nazis. I mean, the big things are easy. I don't think the story is about the big things. I think the story is about the little things, the small systemic problems that aren't always obvious to us. I mean, when Moses and Aaron and Eleazar and everyone else who was sitting there reading the original copy, do you think they really noticed that problem? I mean, they were all important men. Their names would have lived on no matter what. They all had several wives. They all had many sons. They weren't worried. Their names are going to carry on through history they probably didn't have any more bias against any, well, any women, any more than, well, it was in those days, generally. But because of who they were, where they were, how important they were, they were blind to this problem. Just a small, simple problem that would have been painful for people going down through history. It happens in modern day. I, I, I remember hearing a story told by Cheryl Sandberg. If you remember that name, uh, she's currently the COO for Facebook. And in 04, when she found this problem in her life, she was working for Google. She had been in charge of the ad program, which at that time was four people. And by the time she had left, was up to 4,000 people. So she was there right when it went from being in a little corner office park to being the big titan it is in modern day. She had a happy problem. She was pregnant. She was in her third trimester. Now, the way they had parking at Google was it was just kind of park wherever you want. And sometimes that meant that in her third trimester, she ended up parking way out in the parking lot somewhere. Now, I can't say from personal experience, but it seems to me that third trimester seems like a rather uncomfortable trimester. And she disliked some days having to walk so far in the heat of California. 
She was telling this to her husband, and he was rather annoyed. He worked for Yahoo, which really dates this story. But he worked for Yahoo, and they had spots designated just for women in pregnancy near the main thing, so they wouldn't have to walk very far. Sandberg was at first really annoyed that Google didn't have this too. But she also realized that she was the highest ranking woman in the company. And if that anyone could get it changed, it was her. She tells the story as such then. The next day I marched in, or more like waddled in, to see Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin in their office, which is really just a large room with toys and gadgets strewn all over the floor. I found Sergey in a yoga position in a corner and announced that we needed pregnancy parking, preferably sooner rather than later. He looked up at me and immediately agreed, noting that it had never, he had never thought about it before. The problem is, they just didn't think about it. I mean, they were a group of young men starting a big tech company. Well, eventually become a big tech company. It wasn't there yet. Blindness to the problems in our world aren't always because people are making them because they're prejudiced or uncaring or cruel. It's simply we're not always challenged to see through the eyes of another. It can be hard to discern systemic problems. And just look how long it took to just put in curb cuts all over the country. It took a long time. Because if you were a city planner, you probably weren't in a wheelchair. You didn't think about it. Having these problems pointed out to us doesn't mean that we're bad people, because we're not omnipotent. We don't know everything. Sometimes we need Mala, Noah, Noah Magla, ay, ay, ay. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Mika, and Tirza to poke us in the eye and see, make us see a different worldview, how the rules may not be actually serving justice. Now, when these young women approach the leader, God's law transforms from something set in stone to something alive. It transforms to meet the ideal that it was designed to meet, instead of demanding that the ideal come down to meet it. Jesus speaks about the same thing in Mark 2. He's out there walking on the Sabbath with his friends, and they're picking the wheat and eating it. And he, the, the Pharisees come along because technically that's work. It's against the law on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. The point of the law is not the law, but it's to make human life better and more in line with what God calls us to. I think that's what our, na our nation's founders had in mind when they created, like, the Constitution. And they, they knew they couldn't address all future problems, so they created a system that had a lot of looseness in it, that allowed for interpretation, that allowed for freedoms. They also created a process 
that would allow the Constitution to be amended in case they did make a mistake or they forgot to address a problem or, well, let's face it, as time moves forward, things change. The world isn't the same. Because we have a system like that, we are able to address things like slavery, suffrage, equality, blind spots of the founding fathers fixed as we move towards a better future. Now, normally, as I would come back to something I mentioned right at the beginning, this is where in the sermon you start to wrap everything back up. But sadly, I think this leads us to an even more difficult question. If the story that God is telling us with these five daughters is that God put purposeful problems in the law so that we know that the purpose of the law is to serve justice, are there still mistakes? Are we charged for watching out for problems and addressing them? I mean, we can see how it works going forward as we go towards Jesus' coming. And we see that rabbis, the teachers, the priests continue to write and study the scriptures, the law, and adjust it to meet the world as it comes and changes around them. We can see that that's what they do. Sometimes they go too far. And then we have the prophets coming out and telling them, you've gone too far, come back. Sometimes they don't go far enough. And the prophets come out and say, catch up. Yeah, they make mistakes both directions. But we are Christians. We're not people of the law. Our faith may have come from the law. That might be the, the soil that it was planted in. But we are people of Jesus. We are the people of the kingdom of grace. There's not an easy answer to it. I wish there was. And I think that's a lot of the difficult questions that Christians are asking one another right now. Where does the law apply here? How do the rules apply there? Where is grace? Where is love? How does it all work? I don't know. I don't really know. I always try to set my compass by Jesus. The thing is, we're all setting our compasses by Jesus, and we still don't all agree. That's okay. We can still work at it. In the meantime, maybe we need to remember that the purpose of God's word, of the Torah, of the law, of the Bible, is that it points us towards God's love, towards God's kingdom, towards God's justice, and that we may need to struggle and keep working with it and figuring out where exactly God is calling us to go next. And maybe we just need to keep being like Moses. Because what is Moses' answer when God comes to him? I mean, when the, the, the five daughters come to him and ask him, what should we do? He doesn't just open the book and say, here's the answer. He could have done that. He really could have done that. He had the book. Instead, he goes back into the tabernacle and he sits down and he prays to God and says, God, 
I've got a difficult problem. What's the answer? I can just pray that maybe we'll get the answer. If not, let's just keep praying that we do. Thank you. As we go out this week into this world, I pray that we can keep our hearts open to God. Taking the problems, the injustice, taking justice and lifting it up to God and asking what is the right direction to take. And that we keep ourselves not firmly fixed on black and white word, but keep our heart fixed on God and asking how we should go forward. Amen. Thank you.